been rejoicing in the fact that I do not have to speak now under the influence of dope and do not have to speak in intense pain. I don't know whether I'm going to preach to you today or not. I'm in one of my periods of agony. I am either up or down. And I went to a big Bible conference, Southern Baptist Fellowship, last week. And one more time, I had to go and begin to cry to God. I want to speak tonight on the God nobody's mad at. My impressions during the solemn time of the funeral of our departed president, my impression was that the God of this day is a mighty likable sort of a fella, that even an atheist wouldn't be mad at him. And my impression this last week in the Bible conference Charlotte, North Carolina, was that the Christ who is preached today, nobody would be offended by him. And so I'm down in the dumps. I want God the Word. I never can preach except when I'm in agony. I don't believe you can witness any other way. My soul, I beg you to pray for the ministry of this church. And if you don't think that's worthwhile, pray for me. Under God. I love to preach of Christ. That's very offensive. Instead of the nice Jesus everybody loves today. And the temptation is great on my part to take away those two things about the Lord Jesus Christ which if a man would face, he'd scream away with him, or he'd fall down to worship him. Anything except the nice, convenient patronizing of a sovereign Christ, that's the order of the day. I covet for your young pastor all the other boys and myself, a broken heart and open doors. I wish 13th Street Baptist Church could pray doors open. In the fifth chapter of the book of Acts, the 17th verse, let me read the scripture and then notice context 
the context of the scripture led to my opening remarks. I just give you this statement about the whole book of Acts. The whole book of Acts is the record of some preacher or some group of preachers or witnesses standing up to interpret something God has done. On the day of Pentecost, things took place, and the reasonable men said, You're drunk. That gave the Apostle Peter an opportunity to get up and interpret what was taking place at the hands of a living God. He said, We're not drunk, but this is God doing things. Yeah, in the fifth chapter of the book of Acts, as always in the book of Acts, it starts in the first chapter. You remember, Luke said he's going to keep on talking about what he'd been talking about in his gospel of all the things the Lord began to do and then to teach. The thing that I'm praying about, the thing that I have to stay in an agony of prayer most of the time, even while I'm telling jokes with you, is that today the doing is sort of absent. We have the responsibility of preaching and trying to explain dry teaching that we all accept in our heads instead of interpreting the great and mighty acts of God. And if you were a public preacher, you'd know what I'm talking about. And more than you ever did before, you'd lift up the hand of anybody who's trying to struggle through the religious atmosphere of this day and preach Christ as he really is. Here again in the book of Acts, something's taken place. God's killed a couple of people by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. God did it through his preacher. And it caused no small commotion. The first effect of it was that great fear came on the people and, and that uh, folks were scared out of their wits. And verse 13 says, The rest of the rest, there's no man join himself to them. They were afraid of that crowd of people of that congregation where two people lied to the Holy Ghost and God acted about it. He came on the scene. He reached down his mighty arm and struck them dead. And it scared people and said, we're not going to go around that place. But in that atmosphere, the people magnified these disciples and believers were the more added to the Lord. Multitude, both of men and women, and things, no small stir took place. Another thing that resulted from the action of Almighty God in striking these two people dead is recorded in verse 17. The thing was spreading so they were bringing people, verse 16, from all the cities round about Jerusalem and, and the disciples in the authority and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ were taking care of their needs. And so the religious hierarchy 
the people who preached to God that nobody would possibly be mad at, we won't talk about tonight, then the high priest rose up, and all that were with them, which is a sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord, God, came on the scene again. The angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go and stand and speak in the temple to the people, A-double-L-all, the words of this life. And they heard that, and they went and began to do what the angel of the Lord had commanded. And in verse 21, the second sentence, the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when they got there, you remember, the prison was, nobody was in it. And verse 24, when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Prayed this Jesus business would get out of hand. And somebody came and said, the men who were in prison, they're standing out there brought open daylight in the temple, and they're teaching the people. And so the captain with the officers, went with the officers and brought them these preachers without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, See, notice now the next few verses I want to talk to you briefly about. The high priest said, Now, didn't we treat you folks fairly? Haven't we given you enough courtesy? Didn't we straightly command you that you should not teach in his name, have your religious ceremony, go through your motions, believe in the God of your choice, anything but haven't we told you enough? We've commanded you. We speak with authority. Did we not straightly command that she should not teach in this name. There's the rock of offense. And instead of paying attention to the voice of authority, ye have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and it looks to us like you intend to bring this man's blood, this Rock of offense, this Jesus, who we took care of after careful examination and investigation, we decided he was a blasphemer and he would never do. And in the name of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we nailed him to a tree. And by so doing, we're serving God as we thought. It looks like you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We are so sorry. We had not meant to be offensive. We must have sort of been carried away. If you'll forgive us, we'll go away and speak no more about this 
man Jesus? No, he didn't answer that way. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, What's before? A little girl had pointed a finger at this self-same Peter and said, You one of you one of his, aren't you? He said, Oh no. Excuse me, a case of mistaken identity. No, sir. No, sir. No, sir. And this same man stands now with a Sanhedrin gathered about him. Annas, Caiaphas, the high priest, the chief officers of the Sanhedrin, the greatest scholar of the day, Gamaliel. What an oppressive array of religion. Reminds me of the time the President of France, the Vice Premier of Russia, this personage of the world, the Prince of England, gathered to pay homage at the funeral of our President and attended a funeral. What an oppressive array of constituted religious authority commands the Apostle Peter not to teach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There he stands, the former coward, and it's not that he's going to take advantage of a second chance to be brave. It's not that he's uh, something terrible or tremendous has happened to him, but it is that he has witnessed something that's made a different person out of it. You know, not much difference in people. And I think the one difference, not so much brain power or heart power, I think about the only difference in two preachers or two people is the day they live in and the experiences they witnessed. And the Apostle Peter stands now. You can't brag on him so much, say, oh, well, something happened to him now, and he's an entirely different man. No, he wasn't changed much. And I, I would want it to get out on us, but uh, uh, if you got changed considerably, it wouldn't amount to too much. But I tell you what had changed. The Apostle Peter had been witness to the action of Almighty God in raising Jesus Christ from a grave and enthroning him at his right hand and giving him the job of giving repentance and forgiveness of sins to eternity-bound sinners. And Peter was a witness of that. He wasn't just a dry, matter-of-fact recounter of the truth of it, but he was a witness in the sense that he'd experienced the power of him 
who's been exalted to break the shackles that bound him and set him free. And in that atmosphere, that situation, this man, just a man, when they told him, reminded him not to preach and teach in the name of Christ, he says, we ought. He said, there's just no use talking to me. A man that's experienced what I've experienced and witnessed what I've experienced. No, there's no use talking about this. We ought. Nothing else we can do. Man's got sense not coming out of the road. No question. Yeah, we ought to obey God <coughs> rather than men. Why ought you? Why is this thing settled? He says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. Mean talk to me by keeping my mouth shut about him. I've seen God work. I'm living in a time when the same one you took in all the wisdom of your religious tradition with all the zeal that religious people could have to preserve the status quo. God took this one whom you hung on a tree and raised him and exalted him at his right hand for the express purpose as a prince, a having authority and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins and said we're his witnesses of these things come hell or high water we got to talk about it we got to tell men about this action of God almighty we live, said Peter, in a day when God has laid bare, he's revealed, he's manifested his power, and he's given his answer to the actions of sinful men. And his action and his power is in the exalted position of Jesus Christ. And the job the fathers turned over him to do, no wonder Peter, not in his own strength, not because he's had some experience that so radically changed him, but because he's witnessed the action of Almighty God, he says it's not a debatable question. You men tell us we mustn't teach in the name of Christ. You can kill us. Our Lord warned us to fear not him who can kill the body. Men can do that but to fear him who can destroy 
both soul and body in hell. Peter says, we know what you can do. You killed James, you're going to kill him. But that's all you can do. It's not a debatable question to anybody on God's earth who more than receiving a doctrine has experienced the power. It's not a debatable question. Whatever the cost, we are witnesses. We got to tell people about it. We are witnesses of these things. And here's something I can't interpret. I just read it and pass over it, but it's awful wonderful. And so is also the Holy Ghost. So is also the Holy Ghost. He's talking about one person. He's witnessing the one person. And the two signs about that one person. this world's mad at his death on a cross and his enthronement at the right hand of God he says we are witnesses and so is all the whole so, so is the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him and strange to see, speak on this next verse tonight, when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Let me just say two or three things. Somewhere in my reading, I read words something like this from somebody's pen I do not remember. It is painful to hear a man who does not believe Peter's gospel seek to preach it as if in some sense he believed it. But it is thrice more painful to hear a man who believes Peter's gospel preach it as though he did not believe it. Preaching, praying, living, witnessing without passion, without urgency, reciting facts, quoting creeds, repeating religious formulas, preaching without heart passion and without divine urgency. My friends, Thirty odd years I've wrestled and I've wrestled with my greatest hindrance and my most terrible weakness and my most blasphemous sin. I wish under God 
I could stand there with the Apostle Peter facing that Sanhedrin and stay there in that atmosphere and the atmosphere of the raising of Jesus Christ from a grave and the exalting of him on a throne. I wish I could stand there until I believed it. Till I believed it from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. You know, if I could believe that, I'm telling you the God's truth, there isn't anything in time or eternity that amount to a hill of beans. Is it true? I do not preach down to you. In my head, I've accepted this glorious truth all these years. In my heart, I wish I could get to the place I didn't have to pray, Lord. I believe. Help thou my unbelief. No man could take a pen and do justice to this truth. No man with words from his lips can do anything else, I guess, except stand and take off his shoes and cry out in his heart as you stand face to face with the greatest single truth and fact and experience and action of God this world's ever known anything about. Actually, the man with the print of the nails in his hands, the man who was God manifest in the flesh, the man who was born to die, the man, God's darling, who was given to the dogs, the man who wound up in disgrace on a criminal's tree, the man, the man, there is one mediator between <coughs> God and man. It's this man. How I need him. How I need him. Amen. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yet God. To stand between me and the stroke of God's judgment against sin. Actually, the old boy, I think my mother believes it, I've been trying to. The old boy tells us if we could just believe it, that the one who must mediate between me and the Holy God is now alive forevermore for the purpose working repentance in my heart and granting me the consciousness 
and they experience that the sins are forgiven by holy God. Boy, I wish I could believe that. The more I look into that, the more I wish before I die. I could enter in to the preacher of what it means to wear their heart. With a heart. With everything that is in God. With the heart to believe that God has raised that man from the dead. For I'm dead certain that lip service repeating of the sinner's prayer and going through the motions won't get the job done. There must be hard belief. Something that you can't get out of books. Something that only a power greater than I am can bring to pass in my life. And that's the reason I thank God for the struggle and those little peanuts of hat resting, going against the grain of present day, preaching of what's called the gospel. I know, I know that acceptance of a creed won't get the job done. I know, Brother Henry, somehow or another I got to stand with Peter and say, now I witnessed this, this apart, I know about this. I've witnessed it. I've experienced it. A witness is not somebody who just say two and two, four. A witness is somebody who can interpret what happened. The Apostle Peter, by his own experience, said, you ain't talk to me about obeying you people, how to obey God. I can't do anything else. I'm a witness. I'm a witness. I'm a witness. Peter stood in the day of God's power when he raised the one mediator from the dead and put him on the throne. I'm vitally interested in that mediator, what became of him. I surely am. And I find out that he's sitting there on that throne, climaxing, carrying forth, pursuing, working at the job of God's purposes of salvation. He's exalted him, made him a prince and a savior to give repentance. And the forgiveness of sin. He said, you need to talk to me. This is God working. He's under on the throne now. Anybody need repentance? Go to him. Anybody need forgiveness of sin? He's the one that gives it. That's what he's there for. To give repentance. And the forgiveness of sins. I've tried to imagine how deeply broken 
hearted Peter was when the Lord Jesus was crucified. Peter was a flesh and blood man, and he he loved the Lord. I don't I don't know how to handle this. Maybe you do. I just pass it over. Somehow, another those disciples. I don't I don't know when they got saved, brother man. You can straighten them out next Sunday. I don't know exactly about that. But they sure were balled up about Jesus and his death, I know that. They were broken hearted. And Peter wasn't the only ones and disciples going down the road to Emmaus. They had just broken hearted. They didn't understand the death of Christ. But now Peter stands and by experience he understands what the Lord said. I must needs suffer many things than enter into glory. A man that does not believe in the exalted Christ cannot preach the gospel. And the man or woman who's experienced the power of that exalted Christ to break your old heart, turn you against yourself. To lay hold on Christ cannot help but preach him. Peter, I think, could quote from the book of Psalms and say, I'm standing in the day of which the psalmist in 118 spoke, the right hand of the Lord is exalted. The Lord doeth right valiantly. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. The builders refused him. He's the head now. This is the day which God has brought to pass. We will do what? We will rejoice. And be glad in it. Hallelujah. He's exalted him as a prince and a savior. Hallelujah. Let's be glad about it. I have to cry to God so much before what I'm doing about now gets sweet to me. Let's be glad about it. This is a great day, great day of great joy. You and I are living in the time when Jesus Christ from a throne works repentance in men's hearts, breaks the chains that bind them, and set them free. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The power that cancels sin set the sinner free. He says we are witnesses of these things. We are witnesses. We can't keep our mouths shut. Every once in a while I go back <coughs> to one of the earliest trophies of my poor little ministry. It did me so much good then in 
And I think that very seldom a week goes by that I do not recall this experience. It helps me. I'm thinking about Mr. Carnes in my first pastorate in an oil town. Mrs. Carnes became a member of our little church. Her husband was a big shot, and he was there in the oil city dealing in within the law and yet criminal business, making a lot of money. He had been secretary to Andrew Carnegie. He had been everywhere, highly educated, the soul of culture and courtesy. And he finally got to come in to hear me preach. And uh, he'd sit and listen to me, tell me he enjoyed listening to me preach. His wife got greatly concerned about him. I got a little concerned, and one day his wife hatched a plot. She said, Sunday, you're going to have Sunday dinner with us, and after the meal I'm going to have an errand. I've got to run, and said, I want you to really talk to my husband. said, for the first time in our life together, I actually believe he might listen. And I... We had a lovely dinner, and then she made some excuse and absented herself and left me, just a young 23-year-old preacher boy, to tackle that man. And I did the best I could, and he cut me to pieces. He knew the Bible, cover to cover. Inwise and sidewise, he'd use it to argue about. He is smart. I never will forget how he butchered this poor little preacher boy. He, he, he butchered my soul. I burst out in a sob, got up out of my chair and ran out of his house. I was in an awful shape. They're trying to witness to him. I'd had to listen to him answer with his criticisms in his mind. My testimony that has, has to come from heart to heart, not mind to mind. And I remember I'd worked hard all week to prepare a high-powered sermon for that night. That afternoon out in West Texas, it started to rain, just came a cloudburst. When the evening service time was there, just, oh, it's raining terribly. Doesn't rain much in West Texas. And the crowd decided that they'd leave it with me. Instead of having a big crowd, we used to have a big Sunday night crowd way back yonder. I just had a little handful of folks that braved the awful cloudburst. And I was a little younger then than I am now, and I just couldn't afford Brother Mayhem to wish that big sermon, you know, on that little handful of people. And I was desperate. And I went back to my study, and I was sort of mad, too, because the people hadn't come out to hear a big preacher like me, let a little rain keep them from it, you know, and I hadn't put a hard time. And I was suffering, too, because that intellectual giant had cut me to pieces so at his dinner table, and I had ruined it. 
and discouraged and blue. And I got up that night and preached a little half-hearted sermon. Oh, well, I believed in the other denial, and I decided when it was over it wouldn't do any harm. And I said, we're going to stand and sing. And somebody here may want to publicly confess Jesus Christ, because I knew nobody did, but I thought I ought to be religious. And before the song leader could get the tune hasted, here came that man, running down the aisle, sobbing like his heart would break. Put his big old arms around me like to crush me to death. Never forget what he said. He said, I can rebel against him no longer. I surrender. I surrender. Oh, if there's somebody sitting on a throne with the authority and the delegated task of giving repentance to men and giving them forgiveness of sin, I don't understand how an old rebellious sinner could be brought in a way that I certainly could get no glory to a place where he'll say publicly, I can rebel against him no longer. I surrender. And I remember that the next Lord's Day I baptized him. And the next Lord's Day I called on him to lead in public prayer. If I live to be a thousand years, I'll never forget his prayer. It is a matter of fact. He said, Oh, Lord, this first time I ever did anything like this, if you'll help us today, I'll be much obliged. Amen. That was his prayer. It came from the heart. In the course of time, we set him apart to the work of a deacon. Two weeks after I baptized him, he called me by phone and said, Brother Pastor, could you come down to the office? I just must see you. And I went down, and he had, get, had gotten out of his in, within the law crooked business and was cleaning up everything, paying things off, straightening things out. He sat me down, faced me with the best between us, and he paid me the greatest compliment I've ever got. And I needed it then. It don't hurt to compliment a young fellow once the while was in the battle. He said, Pastor, that was his name for me. He said, I've heard all the preachers that amount to anything. The big preachers of my day said they used to travel 150, 200 miles just listen to a big preacher to criticize him. So they had to come way out here to this Texas oil town and listen to a boy old enough to shave before the claims of Christ were pressed upon me to where I had to surrender. And then he got up, came around. I stood up and put his arms around me and he kissed me, pulled on the lips. He said, I'll always love you, Brother Pastor. You wouldn't rest. until Christ was Lord. I went away to school. Mr. Carnes died. They sent a telegram to me, and it went astray. And I didn't get it till after the funeral. After the funeral, his wife 
sent me a stick pin, a black pearl, a ruby, I forget which it is, I never wear it, and sent a message. He said he waited, he wanted me to be there at his bedside, and I didn't know about it. And when his strength was gone, he saw he wasn't going to see me. He instructed his wife to get that pen, and after he is gone, to send it to me with this note. Dear Pastor, when you get the blues, well, I've had plenty of that. When you want to quit, left up to me, I'd quit a thousand times. When it looks like you're not getting anywhere, I've been there too. He said, I want you to take this pen out and look at it and remember a God who can conquer a man like me can save anybody he pleases. Brother, many a time when I've been in a meeting, everything I said went wrong came back and bounced and hit me between the eyes, especially in these last years, where the spirit of Antichrist seems to be breathing hot upon our very necks. When I wanted to quit, it looked like I couldn't go on. I'm weak. I remembered how God conquered the rebellious will chains that bound C.J. Carnes, and I spit down there juiced in the devil's face and told him to go on back to hell. I know that somebody that's in the saving business, there's somebody that can't break the rebellion in a man's heart. There's somebody that can set him free. That somebody is the one who hung on a tree and dealt with God's holy law in my stead. Now sits on the throne to save sinners. Glory to his name. Our Father, in his blessed name, we beg you to have mercy upon the preacher and the people this morning and to speak to our hearts one more time and to fill us with boldness and with a holy joy that we live in a day when salvation is in the hands of an enthroned Lord and when he cannot be defeated speak to hearts right now draw people to thyself do something for me and for God's people and for all who are here without Christ I beg in his blessed name this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books.
SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.